Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you're our guest with us this morning, we just want to reiterate our uh, gratitude for the, the privilege it is to, uh, to have you with us this morning as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, that's our aim, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you see anything good this morning at our church, it's all glory due to him. If you see anything uh, that's not good, then we'll take the credit for that. Uh, but we want to exalt Christ this morning. That's our goal. Uh, there should be a copy of, of the Bible in the, uh, underneath the seats in front of you somewhere. Uh, so if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can use those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible with you as our gift to you. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning, and I want to read beginning in verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to do what you love to do. Exalt the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. Jesus, we thank you for laying aside the glories of heaven, taking on flesh, and becoming poor so that through your poverty we might become rich. Embracing death so that through your death we might have life. And just in general... Uh, being a good and wonderful King and Savior. Jesus, we exalt you, we bless your name, and we rejoice that you are who you are. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see your character in the face of Jesus Christ through the preaching of your word this morning. That's not going to happen through my abilities or through the abilities of anyone who hears. That's only going to happen through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would help us to understand the things that cannot be perceived by natural man. Help us to see your truth. Help us to see your character and your goodness 
And Father, I pray that you would guide us in responding to your word in a way that pleases you and brings us greater joy. Uh, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us spend a huge portion of our lives in anticipation. When we're little, we can't wait to go to school on the school bus. After three or four days of school, we can't wait to be done with school, right? Before long, we can't wait to be graduates of school. If you're engaged, <coughs> excuse me, all your thoughts and energies are directed toward the day of your wedding, right? If you are expecting a child, you can barely think of anything else. These are small emblems of a deep longing we share as human beings for fulfillment, for freedom, for meaning, for the good life. And it's this deep longing that the great C.S. Lewis tapped into when writing his most famous book, a book that most of us have read, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. All of the mythical land of Narnia lies in bitter cold. It's always winter, but never Christmas. But then the creatures living in the forest begin to take notice of some interesting turns of events. Uh, a daughter of Eve is spotted, stirring hopes of a fulfilled prophecy from ages long past. Rumors begin to spread. The wicked witch grows more paranoid, more active, more dangerous. Now not just one, but four human siblings appear in Narnia, meeting the prophecy's conditions. Surely the king is about to arrive. The air grows warmer, snow begins to melt, the ground softens, buds and blossoms appear, and finally there he is, Aslan. Now anticipation and expectation are at an all-time high. The wicked queen gnashes her teeth, gathers her armies, evil emerges ready to fight. All the righteous creatures rejoice, waiting for the moment when the witch will be destroyed and Narnia rescued from her curse. But then, fast forward to the moment when he first faces the hideous queen. Surely he'll destroy her. He can slay her with a single word. But contrary to everyone's expectations, he doesn't lift up the sword. Instead, he lays down his life. That very night, every righteous creature was confused. Their expectations confounded. They had hoped for a victory, and they were left facing with what felt like profound defeat. Lewis's Narnia profoundly illustrates the disappointments, fears, confusions, and dashed hopes swirling around in the minds of every person living in Judea in the days leading up to Jesus' death. In this short but remarkable account, Mark, writing decades later to a tiny band of Christ followers living under the shadow of a murderous Roman Empire, describes again and again the confusion, the fear, and the astonishment felt by the disciples of Jesus when he tells them on three different occasions, the Son of Man is going to be arrested He's going to suffer. He's going to be beaten and then finally killed and on the third day rise from the dead. They have no category in which to put that prediction. They just ignore it and move on. Twice in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus heals a blind man and that healing is put right up against the reality that the disciples and everybody else in the entire book cannot see who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so 
they come to Jesus' final week here in Mark chapter 11, and they are still surprised by what actually takes place. Jesus was a disappointment to the crowds, a threat to Jerusalem's leaders, an enigma to his followers, a contrast to the great leaders of the Roman Empire, and of course, it's no different today. We still have trouble getting it, don't we? If Christ's followers in Palestine, if Christ's followers in the first century in Rome to whom Mark is writing had a hard time wrapping their mind around the reality that the king must bear his cross, then how much more so is that the case today? On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus finally publicly declares himself to be the king, but he's not the king everyone anticipated. He is the king who confounds expectations. As a king, he comes to fulfill a mission, but the way that he goes about fulfilling that mission is going to fly in the face of what everyone anticipates. And we're going to see that mission broken down into four objectives, four goals that Jesus pursues in this text this morning, and each one of those goals he pursues in a way that surprises and confounds everyone. First of all, notice with me from verses 1 through 6, King Jesus arrives to wear his crown. King Jesus arrives to wear his crown. Most of you know that there are four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of times we try to harmonize these accounts in order to fill in as much detail as possible. We want to know all the things that happen around Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. But while we're doing that, we need to be careful not to miss the unique theological purposes of each of these ancient documents. They are written a certain way on purpose. And if we pay attention to the unique contours of the gospel of Mark, we're struck by the fact that in almost every case, when Jesus works a powerful sign, healing the sick, uh, 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 releasing the demon oppressed, uh, whatever, he asks people to keep his identity a secret. Have you ever wondered why that is? Jesus in the gospel of Mark keeps this secret, but then we come to chapter 11, and it's quite obvious that he's ready for something different. Somehow, his time has come, the time to, do, to be declared the king, the time to go public as the son of David prophesied long ago. He begins his Sunday morning in the region around Bethany and Bethphage, two tiny villages a couple miles to the east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem itself is swollen with pilgrims from all across the known world. They're getting ready for the Feast of Passover. In a few hours, he'll reach the crest of the Mount of Olives, from which he'll have a tremendous view of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount to the east. Uh, The Mount of Olives is situated about 200 feet above the city of Jerusalem and about a quarter mile, maybe a half mile away. And so he could have seen the entire city. If you were a king making an entrance into your capital, that's the route you would certainly take. It was glorious. But before he does so, he turns to two of his followers and instructs them to go into the next village and untie a donkey's colt. Notice how Mark specifies for us. This is a cult on which no one has ever sat. It's special. It's set apart for this purpose. What is Jesus doing? To us, it's confusing. Why the donkey's cult? Why this young foal of a donkey? That doesn't make sense. 
But if you were a Jew living in Palestine who happened to know your Bible, you would immediately understand what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling the expectation laid out clearly by the prophets, specifically the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah himself must have had in the back of his mind the day when King Solomon himself entered the city of Jerusalem as the king. He was riding on a young mule. Perhaps he was also thinking about the prophecy given by Jacob himself to his son Judah in Genesis 49. Jacob tells him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, Judah, you will bear a king nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Why the donkey's colt? Why not a mighty steed? Because this moment isn't a battle. This is a moment of celebration. His vesture is dipped not in the blood of the enemy, but in the blood of grapes. This is a party. The king has arrived, and Jesus is he. He is the son of David. Certainly the greatest work is yet to be done, but Jesus in the Gospel of Mark has already defeated many enemies. Every stronghold of Satan has been systematically destroyed. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, The hungry are full, the sick are well, the lepers are cleansed. Satan's armies have come out in full strength in the Gospel of Mark, and at every turn, Jesus has said, turn back. Jesus has come to be crowned, and everyone can see it. In Mark's Gospel, one of the most frequently repeated words is immediately. In fact, it appears twice in this chapter. Jesus finishes ministering to this person, and immediately he has to go to minister to this other person over there. Immediately he does this. Immediately he does that. That's constantly the refrain in the Gospel of Mark. It's a frenzy of activity. It's like Jesus never has any time to rest. And then we come to this passage, and we see something happen that hasn't happened yet in the Gospel. Jesus actually sits down. Something's different. Something's happening. The secret Messiah has come to announce his kingship. He's here in Jerusalem for a coronation. The anticipation builds. Satan is gnashing his teeth. The disciples are shouting with joy. The moment has finally come, but there's a twist. Everyone's expectations are going to be confounded. Jesus arrives to wear his crown, but it's not going to be a crown of gold and gems. It's going to be a crown of thorns. No one expected that. Mark tells us later, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they led him out to crucify him and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, 
come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Beloved, let us never forget that the trappings of real royalty are not soft robes, but shed blood. The triumphal procession doesn't follow the road of human glory, but the road to Calvary. Your king never wore designer clothes or lived in a palace of marble. He didn't have a really fancy recliner or a brand new truck with a lift kit. He wasn't surrounded by adoring fans or even an accepting family. According to Mark 3.21, his own brothers thought he was out of his mind. If we're going to follow the real king, then we're going to have to walk the Calvary road too. Don't be surprised when men revile you, when family members forsake you, when friends misunderstand you, when trials come, because our king was no stranger to such things. Mark's first readers needed to remember that because as much as they had pondered the cross of Christ, when they were asked to take up their own cross, they stumbled beneath its weight. And a weighty cross it was. It's not known when Mark's gospel was completed, but there's a wide consensus that it must have been just a few years before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, which means it was written in the late 60s. Uh, That means that the persecution of the Emperor Nero was still very, very fresh in the memory of Roman Christians. The historian Tacitus described the horrors. He was no fan of Christians, but he relates how even those hardened against the followers of Christ began to feel pity toward them. He said, it was not, quote, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Christians were burned at the stake literally crucified, torn by beasts. And the followers of Jesus reading Mark's gospel were feeling it. They were afraid. They were terrified. They were confused. Their expectations had been confounded by the reality of the cross. And and I wonder this morning if you yourself have been surprised by the difficulties that you faced in your walk with Christ. Like, you know what Jesus said, you knew it was going to be hard, you knew it wasn't going to be, to, to, to be easy, but what you're actually facing? Wow. Way tougher than you expected. And you're tempted to throw in the towel and just say, hey, follow Christ, I'm done. I'm giving up. One of the things that the arrival of King Jesus reminds us is that just like the crown of thorns, though horrific, had a holy purpose, so does your suffering for Christ have a purpose. Now, you might not see what that purpose is. You, know, you might not understand why the specific things that you're going through, you are going through. But you can trust and believe that if God can take the crown of thorns and make them one of the most meaningful, purposeful things ever to happen in the world, then he can take your trials and he can make them mean something too. King Jesus arrives to wear a crown. Nobody expected it to be a crown of thorns. Secondly, from verses 7 and 8, King Jesus arrives to clean house. King Jesus arrives to clean house. You say, which verses? 7 and 8, I don't see that. Let's read them again. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. 
Okay, King Jesus arrives to, to clean house. I don't see it, Pastor Jake. I'm not following. Okay, in order for us to get the picture, we sort of have to enter into the world of the people living at that time. Why the garments on the road? That's kind of weird. Why the leafy branches? I mean, that's kind of strange too. What's going on? So imagine you're a Jewish man or woman living in the first century. You grew up in Judea instead of growing up in Texas. The Roman government is in charge, and there's evidence of that everywhere. It makes life really difficult for you. It's like one of the most... Uh, in-your-face realities that you experience in your life. You didn't grow up learning Texas history or memorizing the preamble to the U.S. Constitution or the first few sentences of the Declaration of Independence. You grew up learning the history of your people living in Israel in the first century, and so you have a very vivid and accessible understanding of the history of the kings of Israel, and, and you can think back in your mind to one specific king by the name of Jehu. Uh, you see, Jehu lived in the northern kingdom during the dark days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, some of the most wicked people living. Well, one day, Jehu is minding his own business, and God's prophet comes up to him and anoints him as the next king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there's one important detail about that, Jehu's not related to Ahab or any of his family. So that means in order for him to become the king, all of Ahab's family is going to have to die, right? And Jehu played the part that he was obviously born to play. He was a physical menace who drove his chariot so intensely that others could tell who he was from several hundred yards away. He was an expert marksman with the bow, one of the bravest fellows you can meet. He was a hero. I mean, if they had trading cards back in the first century, Jehu would have been on one of them. It would have been very valuable, I'm sure. He cleaned Ahab's household out of the capital city, cleansed the city from the worshipers of idols so that I am might be glorified. But there's a detail from Jehu's story that connects it to Jesus' triumphal entry here in Mark chapter 11. You see, before Jehu went out and did what God called him to do, the people had a celebration for him and they crowned him king and they laid their garments on the ground in front of him so that he might walk and give him, they gave him sort of the red carpet treatment and now they're doing the same for Jesus. They must have made the connection in their mind. If Jesus is king, that means he's here to clean house. If Jesus is the king of God's people, then the people who are currently ruling have to go. We've got to cleanse the city. And so let's lay out our garments. Let's give Jesus the red carpet treatment because we are expecting him to come in with the sword and cleanse the temple. The same goes for the leafy branches, palm branches, they're called in other gospel accounts. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the average Jewish person living in the first century. The most important event in recent history was the moment when another hero, a man named Judas, who they called the Hammer, it was exciting times, they called him the Hammer, he rode into Jerusalem about 100 year, or 150, 200 years before to drive away the filthy tyrant Antiochus IV. It's an incredible story of bravery and zeal. And Judas was welcomed by God's people into the city of Jerusalem, and they were waving. Do you know what they were waving? Palm branches. Again, what's the connection? Jehu was crowned to cleanse away the idolaters. 
Judas was welcome to Jerusalem to drive away the idolaters, but everybody knew that the job wasn't done. There was a sense of expected fulfillment of anticipation, and, and they're thinking, this is it. This is the moment when God's true king comes, when the son of David arrives, and he's going to march into the city, and he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to cleanse God's sanctuary of the idolaters. But again, there's a twist, isn't there? The expectations of the people are going to be confounded. I bet if we had taken a poll of just about anyone in that crowd, they might have said that King Jesus had come to clear away the Roman oppressors. But that's not what Jesus ends up doing, is it? Does he cleanse the temple of the soldiers? No. He clears away the money changers in the temple. In other words, he takes the the very infrastructure of the sacrificial process in the temple, and he clears that away. The very fabric of temple worship had grown so corrupt that the Lord Jesus would arrive to clear away the worship of God. Now, that's not to say that the Romans were innocent, certainly not, but if it weren't for the Romans, it would be someone else. They were a branch of a very poisonous tree, But Jesus doesn't go after the branches of the tree. He goes after the roots of the tree. He says, no, your greatest problem isn't out there. It's not the political enemies. The greatest problem isn't that you're physically suffering or that you're economically suffering. The greatest problem that I'm going to clear out of the temple is a spiritual problem. It's a problem of worship. The worship of the living God is actually, it's actually become the worship of the self. And Jesus comes to clear that away. According to the New Testament, and we've talked a lot about this in the last few weeks, Christ desires a pure and holy sanctuary in which to reside. He wants, you to, have, he wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to share his goodness and his grace with you. He wants to share his life with you. But he can only be in the presence of that which is pure and holy because he is himself pure and holy. And so Jesus comes into the sanctuary and he cleanses the temple. But I wonder today if what is keeping you from receiving him, if what is keeping you from having fellowship with him is not the very thing that you think he might find attractive and good. In other words, what if the thing that Jesus wants to come into your life and clear away is the thing that you find you're relying on in order to to have a relationship with him to begin with? What if it's your righteousness? What if it's your good deeds? What if it's your obedience? What if it's your professional achievements or your educational achievements or your righteous worship of God? that you're relying on, and Jesus comes in and he wants to clear away that because that's the very thing that's in the way of you having a real relationship with him. If you're going to be rescued from sin and judgment, it's not going to be because of your righteousness or your goodness. In fact, any trust that you have in yourself right now, any trust, reliance that you have in your own goodness and your own obedience to God's law That is the very thing that's in the way of you putting your trust in Christ. And that may be the very thing he wants to clear away from the sanctuary of your heart. King Jesus arrives to wear a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. 
He arrives to clean his house, but he clears away the religious, not the Romans. Thirdly, from verses 9 and 10, King Jesus arrives to celebrate the Passover. King Jesus arrives to celebrate the Passover. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. By now you may have picked up on the fact that this exclamation comes from the 118th Psalm. That's the Psalm that Lily read a few moments ago. It's a Psalm of thanksgiving and praise, but it almost tells a story. The psalmist begins by inviting all of God's people to give thanks to God for his loyal love. Let the house of Israel say, his mercy endures forever. Let the sons of Aaron say, his mercy endures forever. Everybody say, the mercy of God endures forever. He then goes on to recount the victories of the divinely anointed king using the language of the Exodus, pulled directly from the song sung by Moses and Miriam in the book of Exodus. The right hand of the Lord has saved me. The enemies surrounded me. They surrounded me like bees, but the right hand of the Lord rescued me. Finally, God's people welcome the king into the sanctuary for a sacrificial meal. Bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar so that we can celebrate the Passover together. This was the perfect psalm for an occasion like the Passover feast that everyone had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate in just a few days. It reminded them of God's saving work through Moses and David and gave voice to their longing for a future king who would save them once and for all. In fact, that's where the word Hosanna comes from. It's a shorter version of the Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana, save now or save please that appears in Psalm 118, verse 25. But by the first century, it was as much a cry of praise and adoration as it was a prayer for salvation. So the people recognize that Jesus is the son of David, come to fulfill the Davidic prophecies and celebrate the Passover as a victorious sovereign, sort of like when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in the first Passover celebration, like this is the moment he's here to be crowned as the king because it's the Passover. So when we sing the 118th Psalm, we're singing about this man, but once again, there's a twist. The high point of every Passover celebration is the slaughter of the sacrificial lamb. A substitute slain for the salvation of others. If you don't know the story, here's, uh, here it is in a nutshell. The children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. God sends these wonderful signs showing his power over the unseen realm. He commands the king of Egypt to let his people go and the king is Stubborn, and he refuses to let the people go. And God says, I'm going to send one last sign. I'm going to send a destroying angel to destroy the firstborn in every household. And the only way that you can be spared is if the blood of the lamb is put on the outside of the door of the house. So that lamb is killed in place of that firstborn son. And Jesus is going to be that sacrificial lamb. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's the climactic moment of the celebration in Psalm 118. But it means nothing unless it points to a greater sacrifice. And the moment has finally come. 
King Jesus has arrived to celebrate the Passover. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our new king. But in just a few days, the true lamb of God is going to be bound with cords and led away and nailed to the sacrificial wood of the cross. And he's going to be burned in the fire of the wrath of God. From the very beginning of the Bible to its end, we're reminded that unless somebody takes our place, unless somebody takes that wrath in our place, we will never be right with God. Do you remember Abraham and Isaac from the book of Genesis? Isaac is led to the top of Mount Moriah. He's supposed to be the sacrifice, but God provides a substitute. There's a ram in the thicket. The firstborn son is supposed to be destroyed by the destroying angel, but God provides a substitute. Every year, every day, God's people commit sins worthy of condemnation, but God in his mercy allows those sins to fall on the head of a sacrificial substitute, and God's justice is satisfied, but ultimately it's all symbolic. It's all meant to point to a day when God will provide a real substitute, not a ram, Not a spotless lamb from the herd, but himself, the son of God. God come to earth as perfect man, the son of David, the rightful king. He is the lamb of God. I hope you can see from this passage that the message of the Bible is not anything like do better. It's not implement these principles in your life and you'll have a better life and you'll probably make a little bit more money and have some better relationships. That's not what the message of the Bible is. Now, if you want to understand what the Bible teaches, you have to grasp the seriousness of this great chasm that lies between us, unrighteous creatures, and God, who is perfectly holy and righteous. That chasm cannot be bridged by our righteous deeds. Someone has to come in and fix this problem for us, and God sends Jesus to do it as our perfect substitute. This idea that we have in our mind of a God who just doesn't care what we do with our lives or isn't concerned with the choices we make, it's just not accurate. God is very interested in our holiness and in our obedience and in making things right in the world, but the truth of the matter is that we have gotten things so wrong, friends, that no one else can pull us back from the brink, not, not, not even ourselves. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be spared. Only Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. And as it would seem, he's arrived on the scene and he set in motion a divine plan that is irreversible and it's gonna end up with him on the cross bearing our sins. We have no reason to be self-righteous or self-reliant. It took the death of the perfect son of God to bring us into fellowship with the holy God. We must humble ourselves before God and say, God, my sin was so serious that there was no other way to be made right. It's not something I can fix on my own. It's not something that works for that guy but doesn't work for me. This is something I need. I need the shed blood of King Jesus. King Jesus came to wear a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. He came to clean his house, but it was the religious, not the Romans, that he cleared away. He came to celebrate the Passover, but he came to be the sacrificial lamb. And then finally, notice from verse 11, King Jesus arrives, and where is everybody? 
King Jesus arrives, and where is everybody? He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Does that feel a little anticlimactic to you? Jesus has already crossed the point of no return. He's publicly identified himself as the next David, the next Solomon, the son of Judah, the rightful king of the Jews, and in front of everybody from all over the world, these huge crowds that are amassed in Jerusalem, they've all seen it. Roman soldiers are everywhere. He set in motion a course of events that from this point forward cannot be reversed. You do not declare yourself a king in the Roman Empire and just walk away unscathed. They are not going to let that go. And the chief priests are on it. They do not want to lose their positions of power, and they are terrified that if Jesus is allowed to continue, they're going to be crushed by their Roman oppressors. And yet at the moment that should have been a huge celebration of his victory, a, a huge battle perhaps, between the forces of good and the forces of evil, he shows up at the temple, and it's like there's no one there to acknowledge him at all. And Mark says, well... It was getting late. I guarantee that phrase would not have been lost on the first audience of the Gospel of Mark. Late in more ways than one. Too late for the temple. In spite of the fact that it was one of the most glorious buildings in existence and took more than a generation to complete, it would be raised to the ground just a couple of years after Mark finishes this document. Totally destroyed. Too late for the temple, too late for the religious establishment. They knew their Bible. They knew that to curse God's anointed king would spell their doom. They knew Psalm chapter 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. They knew it. And yet they were about to hang the king upon a tree, cursed by God and despised by men. Too late for so many. Their king had arrived and they weren't even willing to show up. But this morning, friends, listen, it's not too late for us. And look, here you are. You're not missing. You're here. You're present and accounted for. I'm not, I'm not sure why you came today. Maybe you came because you wanted to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, because you love him, because the Holy Spirit's done a work in your heart. Maybe you're here today because someone dragged you here. Maybe you're here because, hey, you know, we're, we're serving food. That it's it's, it's going to be a good day. Maybe you want to be here because of the Easter egg hunt. Who knows? But you're here. And you have the opportunity to hear that King Jesus is the King. Not the King that you might have expected. Not the King that you create in your own mind's eye and your own imagination. But the real King. And he's come and he's the only one who can actually rescue you from the greatest evil in this world that exists. An evil that in seed form resides right in here in the human heart. And he's the only king that can bring you into the greatest good in human existence. Fellowship with God. So the invitation today is twofold. First of all, to simply receive Christ as your king. To say, Jesus, you're in charge. I'm not going to fit you into my mold. I'm going to recognize I need to submit to you. I need to humble myself before you. I need to recognize that you're in charge, that it's not too late for me, that I can bring my sin and my brokenness to you and call out for you to save me. Folks, today is the day, and it's not too late.
Second response, rejoice. Because Jesus is good. I mean, he is the king you would have never thought of on your own, but he is so wonderful in all these ways that he surprised us. He is so worthy of our worship and our praise. So instead of sitting there with a scowl, <laughs> let's rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me now? And let's just take a moment to do that together. Father, we could not have conceived a better king. All the other kings of the world fall far short. But your son is worthy of all of our attention, all of our worship, all of our obedience, all of our love. He has earned every word of praise. He has earned every prayer, every thought, and he has even earned our righteous standing before you. Because of King Jesus, we can stand before you not guilty. And so this morning, if there are any here who have been riding the fence about this or who have been running away from King Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they give their hearts to him as subjects of the one true king. And for all of us who have given our lives to Christ, I pray that you would give us hearts of joy. Help us to really grasp the love that you've shown for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to truly understand his wisdom, which is far beyond our own. Help us to grasp that there is nothing better than to have fellowship with you in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that's what would happen today, that you would be worshiped and that our hearts would be filled with your joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.